Well, the professional football season begins this week. And at first glance, tonight's chapters seem to be a roster of NFL teams. Daniel 7 and 8 has Lions, Eagles, Bears, Saints, and Rams. We even have Chiefs or Kings. In fact, we have the Chief of the Universe in these chapters, the Ancient of Days. There is also an unnamed beast. It's called Dreadful and Terrible. Let's hope that's not the Atlanta Falcons. Actually, Daniel's visions have nothing to do with the National Football League, but with a League of Nations. Daniel, writing from Babylon, is shown 2,500 years of Gentile world domination. He sees four beasts rising out of the sea. Four beasts represent the four world-governing empires from Daniel's time until today. Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. These kingdoms ruled the world for a thousand years. Daniel's vision in these two chapters is one of the most remarkable sections in all the Scripture. The exactness with which the prophet describes the details of what were future events is amazing. The rise and fall of kings and kingdoms are described by Daniel long before they appear on the pages of history. These chapters offer conclusive proof that there is a God who dwells outside of time, who sees the end from the beginning and is sovereign over world events. And that God is the one who inspired Daniel and whose words are in this Bible. With that said, let's kick off chapter 7. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. The secular date for this vision was 553 B.C. In keeping with tonight's NFL theme, the book of Daniel is actually divided into two halves. The first six chapters are the narrative of Daniel's life. The last six chapters record the visions of the future that God gives to Daniel. Daniel receives four visions, one each in chapters 7, 8, 9, and then one in chapters 10 through 12. The most comprehensive, the most sweeping of these visions is chapter 7. It outlines the future, while chapters 8 through 12 then fill in the details. The Jewish scribes who copied the Old Testament considered Daniel 7 to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel is only going to give us now the main facts. Apparently there were other details that he chose not to record. We only get the essentials. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now we'll gather from the context of this chapter that what Daniel sees is symbolic. And throughout the scriptures, the sea is an idiom or a symbol for lost humanity. Isaiah 57 verse 20 reads, 
But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. You know, we still use similar imagery today. We've all heard the expression, a sea of humanity. The sea represents all of mankind. And the winds are God's providence. He is the one who stirs up nations. God manipulates events according to His purposes. And out of this vast sea of humanity, Daniel sees four beasts rise. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now there's no need for us to speculate on the symbolism of the beasts. In fact, you can peek ahead to verse 17. And Daniel tells us what they represent. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which rise out of the earth. You know, it's interesting. Countries still use animals as national symbols. Great Britain is the lion. The United States is the eagle. Russia is the bear. Daniel sees the same progression of nations here that Nebuchadnezzar saw back in chapter 2. He sees four Gentile empires from the time of Daniel until the time of the end, empires that dominate global politics. Now, the first of these world-governing empires was Babylon, or the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon ruled the world from 605 to 539 B.C. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 19, spoke of Nebuchadnezzar as a lion, Ezekiel saw him as an eagle in chapter 17, verse 3. The famed Ishtar gates, the doors to ancient Babylon, had winged lions as its insignia. But what happens to the wings in this vision? We're told they get plucked off. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God and given the heart of a man. That's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 4. You remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, the predator who stalked the earth like a wild beast, ended up being tamed by Yahweh, the lion tamer. Well, after the Babylonian Empire came the Medes and Persians. They ruled the earth from 539 to 331 B.C. Notice Daniel depicts the Medes and Persians as a bear raised up on one side. At the outset, the Medes and Persians shared power equally, but ultimately Persia dominated. Also note that there were three ribs between the bear's teeth. The Medo-Persians conquered three kingdoms in building their empire, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And recall too what they say, arise, devour much flesh. You see, the Persians had little regard for human life. They would wage these massive battles, employing hundreds of thousands of troops. In fact, Xerxes once marched against Greece with three million soldiers. The Persians were like a bear, slow and plodding. They would crush the enemy, even though it might cost them thousands and thousands of their own men. Well, after Persia, 
the Greeks rose to power. And Greece ruled the earth from 331 to 146 B.C. And like a leopard with four wings, they were a combination of splendor, skill, strategy, and speed. Under Alexander the Great, the Greeks conquered the entire world in less than 10 years. And it was part of God's providence that throughout his conquests, Alexander would spread the Greek culture and language. So that by the time of Christ, all the world spoke Greek, setting the stage for the spread of Christianity. Again, God is in control of the rise and fall of nations. When Alexander died, he left his empire to his four generals, which are depicted here by the leopard's four heads. We'll talk more about Greece in chapter 8. Verse 7 tells us, Now after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It was this fourth beast that disturbed Daniel so. Remember, he wasn't afraid of the beasts in the lion's den back in chapter 6. But this fourth beast shook him up. Dreadful and terrible was his description. It can also be translated menacing and mighty. In fact, I need to refute what I said earlier. This dreadful beast can't be the Falcons because it's been a long time since any Atlanta team broke in pieces and trampled anyone. Yet that's what this beast does. It mangles with its iron teeth. In verse 8, the plot thickens. I was considering the horns. Remember, there were ten of them. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now on the world stage, after Greece, came the Romans. Rome ruled the world from 146 B.C. to 476 A.D. Their empire lasted 600 years longer than the Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks combined. The Roman Empire extended from England to Egypt, from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, far outstretching the reach of its predecessors. Rome, like this beast who tramples and devours, Rome became famous for its cruelty. Its lust for blood was unrivaled. It was the Romans who refined crucifixion gladiators and human torches and feeding Christians to lions were all part and examples of the ruthlessness of Rome. She did devour. She did trample. In a sense, this fourth beast was the Romans. But it also represents much more than ancient Rome. Now understand a few characteristics of Bible prophecy. First, like animals to the ark, Prophecy frequently comes in twos. There are dual fulfillments in biblical prophecy. You'll recall there are two comings of Christ. The Bible talks about two forerunners. It talks about two babels. It talks about two defeats of Tyre. And I could go on and on. Often, a single prophecy describes both a short-term 
and a long-term fulfillment with similar details. Second, there are also hidden gaps of time in the fulfillment of Bible prophecies. Bible prophecy is like looking at a mountain range from a distance. The peaks are actually separated by large valleys, but from a distance it appears as if you're looking at one summit. Well, such is the case here. The fourth beast describes Rome, but it's during the reign of this Rome that God destroys the kingdoms of man and establishes his kingdom. Now, this hasn't happened. This is an event that's yet to come. This is why many scholars see in the fourth beast a last day's revival of ancient Rome. And this little horn that rises up, whose mouth speaks pompous words, is the Antichrist who will rule the world from Rome. One more point before we move on. Daniel basically sees what King Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2. But the king was observing history from man's viewpoint. Thus he sees human government as metallic and shiny and a polished image, a thing of beauty and glory and wisdom. Whereas Daniel, observing history from God's viewpoint, sees human government very differently, as animalistic and barbaric, as ravage and savage. To him, man's kingdoms are beasts that frighten and destroy. What a contrast between God's perspective and man's perspective. Well, verse 9 continues. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. This phrase, ancient of days, could be translated days without beginning, or the one who has been around forever. This is our God. And notice the burning wheels on his throne. This is what Ezekiel saw, remember, God sitting on his throne chariot. This picture also resembles Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. White hair like wool and eyes on fire. Well, verse 10 tells us, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Heaven's tribunal. God's court has come to order. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now we know the identity of this Son of Man. For Jesus applied this very passage to himself. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, at Jesus' trial, the high priest asked him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered by quoting this passage from Daniel. He lists out the very words. 
It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, the priests knew that Jesus had made himself the Son of Man in Daniel, for he uses the exact terminology. And it's, that's why the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. He knew what Daniel goes on to say about this Son of Man in verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us that God will give to his Son the nations of the earth as an inheritance, the ends of the earth as a possession. Thus, in quoting Daniel, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, equal to the Ancient of Days. Now, as a result of this vision, Daniel says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. At first, Daniel didn't know what to make of all that he had seen. And so he approaches someone in the vision. Perhaps it was an angel. And he asks him to explain the vision's meaning. He says, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. The term saint means set apart or dedicated to God. And in contrast to these four kings, these Gentiles who have been ruling the world, these saints are the Jews. And God promises to Daniel that Israel will one day be given this everlasting kingdom. The Messiah will reign in Israel. Daniel foresees Israel's coronation day. And this was a great encouragement to Daniel. Remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews, along with Daniel, are now living in exile. Gentiles controlled the world, even the land of Israel. But God says His promises have not failed. Here God shows Daniel that Gentile rule will one day end. And that God will fulfill all his promises to the Hebrews. That the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful. And with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head... And the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom." Daniel wants more information on this fourth beast. Of all that he saw, it was this last beast that piqued his curiosity. And thus he said, 
Apparently, this is the angel in the vision now who's speaking to Daniel. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. As we said earlier, Daniel sees a revived Roman Empire taking the form of a ten-nation confederacy. The emergence of such a political entity began on March the 25th, 1957, with the signing of the Treaty of Rome. Half a dozen European nations took a pledge of unity that day, France, Belgium, West Germany, Luxembourg, Italy, and the Netherlands, all within the borders of ancient Rome, by the way, signed the treaty and the European economic community was born. Over the 60 years that have followed, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, the EU has expanded its membership and has intensified its efforts toward unification. Here's a brief timeline that documents how quickly unity has progressed since the treaty of 1957. 1979 saw the first elections to a European Union parliament. 1985 brought open borders with no passport control. 1986 saw the establishment of a European flag. 1993 and the Maastricht Treaty launched a formal plan for full economic, political, and even military unity. In 1999, the euro became the EU's single currency. And this has propelled the European Union, the economy of Europe, into being the wealthiest and the largest in the world, even topping the United States. Since 2000, the EU has also grown in membership from six countries to 12 to now 27 member states, helping to unite both East and West. Today, seven more nations are potential candidates. In fact, the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize went to the European community. Of course, European unity is not without its setbacks. We've seen this just this past summer. This June, in response to uncontrolled immigration and economic uncertainty, Great Britain withdrew from the EU. It was a Brexit, Brexit from the Union. But other countries are threatening. Recently, the French prime minister was quoted as saying, now is the time to invent another Europe. Yet regardless of what happens to its current configuration, understand European unity, the reuniting of the old Roman Empire, is what is seen as a necessity. Two world wars in the last century both started in Europe. That's what prompted former German Chancellor Helmut Kohl to state, war in Europe is only avoidable through European Union. And for that reason, political unity is the most important of all. Today, the unification of Europe is seen as the glue that keeps the peace. And with the rise of radical Islam, unity is all the more important. We know from Daniel that eventually a union will coalesce into ten nations. Old Rome is on the rise, just as Daniel predicted. When you read the EU's constitution, it's no surprise that its democratic ideals 
are attributed to ancient Greece and Rome. The EU ignores its Christian heritage. In fact, the EU's favorite symbol is the Greek goddess Europa on the back of a mystical bull. It's often seen, as in this picture, rising out of the sea, like the fourth beast here in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, in Revelation 17, the last day's Rome is also seen as a woman riding on a beast. Again, a favorite symbol for the EU. The woman is the religion that rides to power on this dreadful beast of Daniel chapter 7. Today, this symbol of the woman on the beast is used all over Europe in various ways. Verse 24 continues, And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. In other words, another king will arise out of these ten kings. We're told that he'll overcome three obstructionist states, and he'll rule over the other seven. Remember, Daniel tells us that the fourth beast will devour the whole earth. This little horn, which rises among the ten horns, will eventually rule the world. And this ruler goes by many names in Scripture. He's the seed of the serpent. He's called the Assyrian. He's called the man of sin. He's called the willful king, the lawless one, the beast in Revelation 13. But the name with which you're most familiar is the Antichrist. See, the real impediment to European unity over the last 60 years has been the lack of a leader. Europe suffers from a power vacuum. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, East German Martin Garber, he stated this, power is lying on the ground waiting for somebody to pick it up. Paul-Andre Spock, an EU founder, he made this statement, we don't want another committee. We want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people and lift us up out of the economic mess we've gotten ourselves into. Send us a man, whether he be God or a devil. Send him. They'll get their man. Europe and the world desperately seeks a leader. Soon this little horn of Daniel 7 will appear. It's quite possible he's alive today being groomed for his role. Well, verse 25 speaks of this little horn. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. This future ruler goes by many names, as I've just described, but his most popular name is Blabbermouth. That's how he's most often depicted, because he spouts blasphemies against God. And he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. And for a time and times and half a time. This little horn will be so arrogant. That he'll try to alter the calendar. Maybe even the days of the week. Give them new names perhaps. He'll tinker with fundamental principles of law. He'll probably try to strip the culture from all vestiges of our Judeo-Christian heritage and usher in what he'll call a new world order or a post-Christian era. And notice we're told he'll persecute the saints, that is the Jews. The word persecute means to wear out. And for time, times, and half a time, or for three and a half years, this Antichrist will conduct a second holocaust. He'll try to wear out the Jews. 
Now realize, some people equate these saints with the church. And they conclude that Christians now might be called on to endure the great tribulation. But the saints can't be the church. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here, the Antichrist prevails against the saints. Yet Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Obviously, the church can't be these saints. These are the Jews. We'll learn in chapter 9 that after signing a treaty with the Jews, the Antichrist will betray them and viciously attack God's chosen people. Again, here the saints are the Jews. Verse 26 tells us, But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Again, Daniel sees all of this in the context of God's tribunal, God's court. The Lord oversees affairs on earth, and he renders his verdict. Revelation 19 verse 20 tells us that in the end, the Antichrist will be cast alive into the lake of burning with brimstone. The kingdoms of man will end and the kingdom of God will be established forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Understand this little horn that Daniel 7 talks about is the last Gentile ruler before God's takeover. God will take over the kingdoms of this earth and they'll be given to his people, the Jews, who will rule them forever. When Jesus returns, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. It was a lot for Daniel to grasp. Imagine he had been shown the end of human history. Chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. It's two years later. The year is 551 B.C. Now I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Now Daniel is in Babylon physically, but in his vision he's been transported to Shushan or Susa, about 375 miles east. Shushan was the birthplace of the Medo-Persian Empire and was the winter residence of its king. In Susa or Shushan we find Nehemiah. We find Esther. This is the setting for those books. Daniel is taken to this future site of Persian power, and he sees their coming kingdom. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram with two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Again, there's no need to guess here who this ram is. Verse 20 identifies the ram with two horns as the Medes and Persians. In fact, the Persian king was the Persian king in history wore a crown of gold made like a ram's head. In the Persian ruins of Persepolis, they have found ram's heads engraved on the top of sculptured pillars. 
The ram was the ancient symbol for the empire. These two horns represented the two divisions of the kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. The horn that ends up dominating is Persia. History tells us that it was during the reign of Xerxes that the Persians superseded the Medes. And a word of reminder before we go further. Don't forget, Daniel is not a historian. You might be sitting there thinking, man, Daniel, he was into history. He, he really understood the, the, the history of the past. Daniel's not a historian. Daniel is God's prophet. He's seeing these things in advance. He is recording these details before the fact, not afterwards. And Daniel writes, while Babylon is still the reigning empire and will be for a dozen more years. Verse 4, now I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. The Persian Empire expanded north into Asia Minor, west toward Babylon and south toward Egypt. They enlarged the borders of Babylon and became the greatest kingdom to that point that the world had ever seen. In fact, Persia was the last great eastern empire. And as I was considering... Suddenly, a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. He's moving so fast. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now again, God leaves nothing to guesswork. In verse 21, the goat is Greece. A goat was their ancient symbol. Greece's early capital was named Aegea, which means the goat city. Today, the Aegean Sea is the Sea of Goats. Daniel 8 verse 21 also tells us that the notable horn that was between his eyes was the Greece's first king. This was the most famous and successful king of the ancient world. This was the man named Alexander the Great. Verse 6 tells us, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. I guess you could say he got his goat. Alexander was quite a young man. His tutor was a philosopher named Aristotle, who among all things was a brilliant strategist. In 331 BC, Alexander inherited command of the Macedonian army from his father Philip. He was just 19 years old. A highlight of our Greek tour last fall was to visit uh, Philip's tomb there in Macedonia. After crushing various Greek city-states and unifying Greece, in 334 BC, Alexander crossed the Aegean Sea into Asia where he confronted the mighty Persian army, outnumbered, a half million men to just 40,000. A ratio of 12 to 1. 
Alexander conquered Darius and the Persians. Now in Asia Minor, Alexander began to plow eastward and southward. Sidon fell. He then won a remarkable battle at Tyre. Remember, Ezekiel 26 told us about it. Jerusalem surrendered to Alexander the Great in 333 B.C. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that while Alexander was in Jerusalem, he was shown this passage from Daniel chapter 8. He acknowledged himself as the notable horn who would defeat the Persians, which he had just done. Egypt surrendered to Alexander in 332 B.C. He was crowned Pharaoh, and he built a lavish city. Being the humble guy he was, guess what he named it? Alexandria, you got it. That's when he marched north against the Persians in 331. He took the city of Babylon, which he intended to make into his new capital. Had he lived long enough, he would have. Next, he conquered Persepolis and Ecbatana, pushing further and further eastward. Alexander the Great made it as far as India, where his weary troops finally put their foot down and said they'd had enough. They needed a little R&R. They wanted to go home. In little less than 10 years, Alexander the Great had conquered the whole known world. As Daniel puts it in verse 5, it was as if this male goat was skipping across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. It was moving so fast. Legend has it that at the end of his conquest, Alexander laid on his bed and cried and said, for there were no more worlds to conquer. It was mockingly said of another general, Dionysus, a tub was large enough for Dionysus. A world was too little for Alexander. Verse 8 tells us, Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander died in 323 B.C. He was just 33 years old. He was at the pinnacle of his power. Seems that after several rounds of drinking, he got sick. Twelve days later, he died. He literally drank himself to death. And while lying on his deathbed, several of his friends asked him to whom he would give the kingdom. Supposedly, he said these infamous words, Give it to the strongest. And that statement set off a bloody, brutal struggle among his subordinates to decide who would succeed him over the kingdom. His wife Roxanne and his only son were murdered as a result. Eventually his empire was divided among four chief generals. Here in chapter 8 verse 8 it refers to them as the four notable ones. General Cassander took over Macedonia and Greece. Lycomachus went on to rule over Asia Minor. Seleucus became the king of Syria. And Ptolemy ruled over the land of Egypt. Over the next few centuries, God's people, Israel, lived between two warring Greek kingdoms. The Seleucids to the north of Israel and the Ptolemies to the south of Israel in Egypt. Now, Verse 9 tells us, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, 
toward the east and toward the glorious land. The term glorious land was a name for the land of Israel. Now here's where it can get a little confusing, so, so be careful. Don't mistake the little horn here in chapter 8 with the little horn in chapter 7. They're both rulers, but they're different people. The little horn here in chapter 8 is the ruler at the end of the Greek empire. While the little horn in chapter 7 is at the end of a revived Rome in the last days. There's some similarities, but these two little horns are two different people. Don't get confused by your little horns now. The little horn in chapter 8 grows out of the Seleucid Empire, which took over Syria and lands further east. The king that Daniel now refers to was the eighth in the line of Seleucid kings, a man named Antiochus IV. He had a famous sister who lived in Egypt. Her name was Elizabeth Taylor. No. Her name was Cleopatra. Antiochus gave himself the name Epiphanes, which kind of shows you what a humble guy he was. Epiphanes means God manifest. God on display. That's what he thought of himself. He thought of himself as a God. How arrogant. The Jews, though, gave him a nickname, which was sort of a play on words. Rather than Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, which means madman. And that's what he was. Verse 10 tells us, And it, this little horn, grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. In the Bible, stars are a symbol for the Jews. In fact, the national emblem of the state of Israel is the Star of David. Here the Seleucid kings fought numerous battles with Egypt. And every time Antiochus marched southward, he would pass through where? He would pass through Israel, where he would launch some atrocity on Jerusalem and persecute God's stars, the Jews. We're told, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. And he did all this and prospered. Now, Antiochus was Greek. And one of Greece's ambitions was to spread Greek culture and religion. And Antiochus tried to grease up the Jews. He even issued a decree that all the subjects should, all his subjects should worship the Greek god Zeus. Of course, the Jews resisted this. They'd been cured of their idolatry by their time in Babylon. Now that they were back in their land, they refused to bow to Zeus or any other god but Yahweh. This is why Antiochus hated the Jews and their god. He defiled their holy sanctuary that is their temple With idols, he stopped the daily sacrifices. He also despised the Old Testament scriptures. Here we're told he cast truth down to the ground. We're told in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression 
of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Now, Antiochus's ultimate blasphemy occurred on December the 15th, 168 B.C. This is between your testaments, the Old and New Testament. On that day, he issued an order to desecrate the Jewish temple. He offered a pig on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar in the temple. And then he erected a statue of of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. This blasphemous act is what the angel here refers to as the transgression or abomination of desolation. In other words, this is the final straw in the eyes of God. This was the transgression that would cause desolation, that would now bring down God's wrath on the Greeks. It's interesting, in Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus uses the same phrase to refer to a similar action that will one day be taken by the Antichrist. The ruler in the last days will also erect an image of himself in the temple and require the world to worship him. This will mark the beginning of the end, the end of time. God will have had enough once again. This blasphemy will be the last tumbler that unlocks God's final judgments on planet earth. We'll talk, about, we'll talk more about that act, which we'll find in Daniel chapter 9, the abomination that causes desolation. Well, verse 13 ends with a question. How long will the temple be trampled underfoot? And verse 14 answers. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, Antiochus's blasphemies infuriated the Jews. Especially one priest, a priest by the name of Mattathias. When Antiochus's emissary came to the old priest and ordered him to bow before the altar of Zeus, Mattathias, he grabbed a sword from somebody standing by and he slew the messenger. Sent a message to Antiochus. His courage, his courageous act began what was called and has been called by the historians as the Maccabean Revolt. It was carried on by Mattathias' son, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, better known as Judas the Hammer. This Judas led a guerrilla warfare against the Syrian troops for a number of years. Eventually the Jews took back Jerusalem and their temple. And on December the 25th, 165 B.C., the temple that had been defiled by Antiochus was cleansed. After its purification, the Jews wanted to reinstitute worship in the temple by lighting their golden menorah. The menorah ceremony, though, to dedicate the temple took eight days. The Jews, though, had a problem. They only had enough sacred oil for a single day. The story goes, God did a miracle. The oil continued to burn even after it should have run out. And today, the Jews celebrate this miracle at the Feast of Hanukkah, or what is called the Festival of Lights. It's also called the Feast of Dedication, a feast that according to John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus himself celebrates. 
what about the 2,300 days? If you go back 2,300 days from the rededication of the temple on December the 25th, 165 B.C., you come to September the 6th, 171 B.C. Now This corresponds with the timetable where the relations between Syria and Israel really soured. But what occurs on September the 6th that triggers this 2,300 days? What occurred? I have no idea. And no one I've read knows either. So I, there's lots of suggestions, but I think it's buried in the sands of time. Verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. It's the archangel Gabriel that suddenly appears to Daniel. His name Gabriel means mighty one of God. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. That's the end of the age, just prior to God's intervening in the establishing of His kingdom. Now, as He was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But He touched me, and I stood upright. And He said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. Daniel was so exhausted from all that he had seen. He falls asleep. Gabriel has to wake him up. And this gives me great assurance, reassurance. I'm not the only preacher who's put people to sleep. It even happened to Gabriel, the archangel. In verse 20, Gabriel explains the meaning of the vision that Daniel has just seen. And remember, this is hundreds of years before the rise of these empires. He's still back in Babylon. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king, that is Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. These were the four divisions of the Greeks which followed the reign of Alexander, None of those kingdoms ever rose to the power of the unified Greece of Alexander. Now verse 23. And in the context of Daniel's earlier vision, you would expect that the next few verses would speak of Antiochus. And they do in a sense. But there are reasons to, view, there are reasons to think that another king is also in view. The king of which Antiochus is a type, the blasphemer, the Antichrist. And here's the basis for me saying that. First, the tone of the text here changes. The subject of these verses is far more sinister than Antiochus. Second, Gabriel states several times that he's about to tell Daniel what he's about to tell him is for the time of the end. The days of Antiochus ended nothing. And third, the points of the vision in chapter 7 and 8, are the closing of Gentile world dominion. 
It would seem fitting that the time of the end would refer to the days of this revived Roman Empire when Messiah will return and establish God's kingdom. I believe these last few verses refer to Mr. Big Mouth himself, the Antichrist. He says in verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. This king is unusually imposing. He's knowledgeable in sinister schemes, perhaps the occult. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Revelation 13 tells us that the Antichrist's henchman, the false prophet, will be given power to work miracles. Even call fire down from heaven. This Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. He'll be hailed a new age guru. He'll also prosper and thrive. He'll have the Midas touch for a season. Whatever he attempts will succeed. Yet in the end, he'll pick on the holy people, the Jews. We're told through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. We'll talk about in chapter 9 how he lies to the Jews and he betrays a covenant he makes with them. He's an expert in Machiavellian strategy. He has no problem with lying to gain an advantage. To him, the end justifies the means. He'll be shrewd, manipulating, politically savvy. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. In the end, he'll claim to be God and demand the world's worship. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. Revelation 19 says that this Antichrist will gather the world's armies to a specific place, to the valley of Megiddo, where there they will mount together to fight against the Christ. But this Antichrist and his armies will be defeated, supernaturally so, by one shimmer of the Lord's glory. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 puts it, The Lord will consume the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It'll be no contest. 